start the recording going. We're going to set the stage for 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 5. Last time, we only got through verse 3. And you can see the title slide here. Paul describes the fruit of the false teachings in the church. The reason this is pertinent to Acts 20, Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, is that Timothy is there in Ephesus during a time where the fulfillment of what Paul predicted is already happening. And I've asked um, Brian to be ready to read the verse where the prediction happens in Acts 20. That would be Acts 20, 29. Okay. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Continue reading. And, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That's verse 30. That's 30. Two. Yeah. 30, 30. Uh, okay, yeah, 30. That's, that's the last verse we did was 30. So we have external wolves attacking the church and internal wolves from within arising, speaking perverse things to draw disciples after themselves. So the reason I went from there to 1 Timothy is it's still Ephesus. Paul's now in prison in Rome. Timothy's there, and we're seeing what it looks like when his prediction already came true. In Ephesus, as we said, very important place in the Bible because that comes up again in the book of Revelation. So, with John. So let's, last time I lectured, we were in verse 3. And so we made progress. We're now we're to verse 4. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So verse 3, he had said, I'll read it to you again. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with a doctrine conforming to godliness. That's the if part. Verse 3, remember Eric talked, taught us about that? Protestants, apotestants. So the if is the protestants, which is verse 3. Now the then is implied, the word then isn't here, but this is the hypothesis. Uh, um, it's implied. Then he is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, conscience, constant friction, and so on, verse 5. So the main part there in verse 4, um, conceited, understanding nothing, morbid interest in things that will lead to continual disputes, and dissensions, but really what it will not lead to is the knowledge of the truth. So you can dispute forever and ever, word fights, Literally, this is so pertinent. Okay, Eric and I were talking about it when he got here. I'm reading a book at the bequest of a professor from Japan who we know who asked me to. You take 
a phrase out of the Bible and write a whole book about it without even doing one tiny little bit of exegesis to show the passage has anything to do with what you're saying. I would take that to be morbid interest. Trying to shoehorn an entire world view of eschatology, which is nothing to do with coming wrath, out of a phrase from the Bible. And never doing a lick of exegesis. It drives me nuts. And as it does Eric, that's why he's doing video. He was seeing that. He got hurt and was watching all this stuff on TV. People think when it comes to eschatology, free pass. All the rules go out. No more exegesis. No more context. No, no more ethereal intent. No more anything. We're just going to go wherever we want. And Eric is saying, no. Get in the scripture and find out what the author intended. So there is the conceit and the lack of understanding. So here is the hypothesis. Now, why do they lead to envy and strife and so forth? Because the teacher, this is my statement, who has some source other than true doctrine from Christ and his apostles, claims to have special knowledge. Um, the rest of us, by nature, must lack. It arose from their own speculation. They just came up with it. The Bible is simply a prop. That's my statement. As if to say, quote, I know something you don't know, therefore I am superior and can act as your judge. Literally what happens. And it's happened throughout church history. And the book, now that I'm 90% through it, I'm going to write an article about, this is somebody else's book that I'm going to refute, as I've been mentioning. And Eric got the book. He's going to read it as well because it needs to be addressed as an eschatological issue. It's based totally on church history and not at all on Scripture. It purports to teach a Christian worldview but not giving, given one lick of exegesis to prove that it's in fact a Christian worldview. Other than God created the world out of nothing, true, that um, certain things in other religions believe differently, pantheism, and then there's different versions of God like Islam, they cover the world religions. The whole thing is, the Great Commission is, we're supposed to Christianize the planet and we've got forever to do it. Just keep Christianizing the planet. And it's all based on Matthew 28, so Eric's going to help and we'll deal with that. That's what I call right there. That's exactly what this is. Word disputes and no possible way of refuting it because the claim is based on discipling nations and baptizing nations. So the simple question, how do you baptize a geopolitical entity? Furthermore, what did baptism mean in the book of Matthew? What did Jesus teach in the book of Matthew? Well, what, did it, what was necessary in the book of Matthew to be a disciple? How do you disciple a geopolitical entity? 
when Jesus, throughout Matthew, is talking about persons. And so they make this massive leap from building on the rock. Who builds on the rock? The Netherlands, Germany, Russia. No, a person. It's just flipped. They just, it's gone. And millions of people read these books and they have no clue that they're being taken for a ride. They're taken for a massive ride. And one, I found where they one time deal with eschatology that Eric and I hold, they dismiss it in one sentence as basically defeated or hopeless. If you think the wrath of God is going to come, then there's something wrong with you. Okay, go ahead, Eric. I mean, uh, Brian. You mentioned last week in your sermon about that conference that's coming oh, here with all yeah, these well, big Oh, yeah, I forget waves. what it's called. Yeah, there's I can't a key, remember what it's did called. Did anybody see the ad? It's on Fox News a lot. Yeah. So they bought time. There's an ad where multiply your wealth for the kingdom. Yeah. I, I saw the ad. You saw the ad, right? I saw the ad. And turned it. Tim Tebow. Was Tim Tebow. On it. But there's a whole. I, I didn't get a chance to look at all the uh, uh, speakers, but I did notice a couple few names that I'm like, whoa, I, I'm surprised that uh, they're there. Anyway, my point is, is that <clears throat> you have this big conference coming, and this is nothing new because you had Jesus with the money changers, you had the idol makers, you had all this through through history where people are just looking at. They look at godliness as a means of gain. It's right here. Yeah, right there. And uh, and Jesus is calling that uh, they they have a depraved mind. Uh, now we see depraved mind again in Romans where he turns people yeah. over to a depraved mind. Right. But they have a depraved... So it always confuses me that right. we say, well, how do we... We can't we can't judge people of their salvation. Only God can do that. But when we look at these people... We can judge teaching. We can judge the teaching, right. So God himself is saying that these people that are teaching this have a depraved mind. Well, the te- uh, good point. Now, let me... We had a discussion about this earlier. I'm convinced that the problem is the same again and again and again and again. And I can tell you what the root problem is. Christian pastors and teachers who do not do exegetical work. And I honestly think that if you haven't spent 10 or 20 years, verse by verse, exegetical work, looking it up, finding the context, learning how to read the Bible, learning how to understand the Bible, and using the best tools that you have to understand the text, you have no business putting on some big conference about money for the kingdom because you probably can't even define the kingdom. So if you can't define the kingdom biblically, what are you doing putting on a conference? And I've seen people that are usually pretty good, but they haven't done the exegetical work. Study the Bible. Read the text. If you would have got a D- minus on your exegesis in a conservative seminary class, what are you doing as a pastor of a church? I'd like to know that. What are you doing putting on a conference? I'd like to know that. Well, because there's a lot of people 
that are being deceived by false teachers from without, from within. Yes. Yeah, you know, one of the problems that we've seen in the seminaries is a lot of the seminary professors, they go from getting their PhD, they're young men, and they really never study the scriptures, as Bob has said, week after week, month after month, year after year, verse by verse, doing exegetical work. They take a course, and it's a survey that you would almost be better served in just getting cliff notes. And mm-hmm. it's, it's designed to really get people familiar with some of the jargon that scholars use, but it's not designed to help you understand the scriptures per se. So Bob and I had confronted professors at Bethel where the best professors they had in systematic theology, one was a heretic, and the other that went in to replace him, he had just gotten his PhD, had spent no time in the scriptures, and yet he's teaching the future pastors. Um, Contrast that with, I had a really godly professor at Bethel, his name was Paul Ferris. He taught the Bible for 30 years, and he was an Old Testament professor, and he could help you understand what the text said. Extremely valuable. But those that haven't spent their time verse by verse going through the scriptures, think of it this way. How can you understand the forest if you've never spent any time with any of the trees? They don't want to look any of the trees, but they're a master of what the forest is about. Well, no, that's not true. Unless you look at the individual trees... You really can't see the forest. I can't tell you how blessed I am by in God's providence showing up at a time when the people that were teaching are the ones whose commentaries I'm reading now. Because they had gone to that. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, uh, who's got great commentaries. I had Dr. Brooks' commentaries. Travis, who's an uh, Old Testament teacher and church history or church history teacher you had Dwight Garrett one uh, it was fantastic but they couldn't make money doing that they got rid of all those guys Daniel Block yes. have his commentaries I had him for uh, the Old Testament and they went to social sociological and emergent and everything else because you can't pay the bills by doing exegesis because there's no market for it Okay, that being said, how exactly is multiplying your uh, wealth going to have a kingdom impact? I have no clue what they're talking about. I didn't know the kingdom of God was dependent on me having wealth. I thought it was dependent on people building on the rock, submitted to the king, Himself, Jesus Christ, who reigns from the throne of God, God the Son, the Creator, who sits at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1, who hears us, who gives us grace, who him and his apostles define the kingdom, and the point of church history to lay out a view someone can critique is this. As the gospel is preached forthrightly, about who Christ is, what he did, repentance, forgiveness, redemption, atonement, born of God, filled with the Spirit, hungry for God because of what he did in us, not what we did for him. That person is extracted from the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1, 13, 14, and the kingdom is growing one subject at a time through redemption. And the kingdom is not 
present on the earth until the king himself is here to reign. It doesn't work by declaring a country Christian because the kingdom isn't built of Christianized pagan nations. It's built by the stones that are being built in on top of the foundation of Christ and his apostles. There's the various analogies. But so, dear ones, don't think that you can't be deceived by these folks, because a lot of people are. They give their money. We were, we were talking about that. Massive building projects that impoverish the people. And then in the end, the pastor goes apostate. Yeah, go ahead. I just thought of this. Tell me what you think of it. We consistently see in the Bible the reversal. We'll see the lesser to the greater. So why would you want to build the kingdom on the greater knowing that the Bible has all these examples of the greater being the lesser? Uh, Yeah, good point. Let me just... I, I don't believe I have a defeated eschatology like they accuse us of having. Okay? And here's why. If you take the other view, which they admit isn't found in the Bible, by the way, Abraham Kuyper is taken as one of the big heroes of post-millennial eschatology, whatever you want to call it. Rick Warren told me that he likes Abraham Kuyper. Well, Kuyper, he, what was it, 1870 in the Netherlands. The Netherlands right now, have you seen the Netherlands in the news? You couldn't be more pagan. You couldn't be more anti. It's just utterly disgusting. They wanted to farmers farm their land. It's so horrible. And I'm from a Dutch background in a Dutch area. So here's the contrasting ideas, okay? The kingdom as defined biblically isn't suffering setbacks. Are you... <laughs> I hope you can get this. Why can I say the kingdom isn't suffering setbacks? Because every single time anyone anywhere hears the gospel, believes the truth, is born of God, is built on the rock, Matthew 7, Eric preached on it, Ephesians, built on the foundation, God is putting the stones together as the, as the building it continues to grow. The only possible setback would be utter apostasy, which God keeps us from. Okay? But uh, it's, the kingdom continues to grow because the kingdom is not a geopolitical entity within the world. The kingdom doesn't have a zip code. Send your money for the kingdom. Here's the P.O. box. <laughs> Attention, the pastor. Uh, uh, Paula, has somebody got the mic? Yeah. Right behind you there. Okay. Um, one thing that the, none of the evangelical churches that I was ever in taught, usually a course starts with the definitions of the terms. Uh, 
nowhere in the church did I ever hear in any message, any Sunday school class, definitions of words like holy, like evil, like good, like even um, what is uh, regeneration. Uh, it was not taught at all. So you talk about dis- words and disputes. They don't even define the terms. Good point. Thank you. Very astute. Let's look at that. But he has morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words. So I have the Greek here. Um, This is the continuing on the if-then. We're in the then part. Uh, Logomachia. Logomachia. Word literally... This in in New Testament, hotbox means here and only here. This is the only time it's used. Logomachia in the Greek is uh, literally word fights. (laughs) Now, that's part and parcel of speculations, morbid cravings for speculations and word fights this produce envy and strife. Logomachia, word fight. And here's the sad reality. The more sound your doctrine is, the more accessible a CC it should be because you're not actually stating something new. Okay? If you're teaching sound doctrine, you're teaching the faith once for all, handed down to the saints. And this doctrine is not new. It's been known for the entire history of the church. And there are people that have held firmly to it because it came from Christ and his apostles. And the reason it will never change is shown right here, what was in uh, verse 3, which we covered last time, those who had different doctrine, heterodox, Didaskalos, which is hetero, hetero teaching, hetero, different teaching, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He appointed his teachers and apostles. And what Christ has said to his church has never changed. If you're teaching the truth, you can't mark it as something, something new because it's not. Luann, here comes the mic. I just wanted to ask real quick, because this is talking about, you know, teachers in a local church or whatever. And, and uh, so we know that the Bible tells us that tares are going to be among the wheat in the church. How do mm-hmm. we handle that? Um, you handle it by teaching sound doctrine you know, in all aspects of of the church in the congregational life. In other words, whether it's to whatever group there may be, the Sunday school, whether it's children, if you have children ministry, whether it's the sermon, always teaching from the scripture accessible, sound doctrine that can be questioned because you have an educated church that is able to question things. And when that's done, 
That's how you end up with the unity of the faith. But when you have word fights over controversial speculations not directly derived from the text, it's impossible to come to the unity of the faith. Yes, Brother Paul. Okay, I have no difficulty with, I, I love the word, I'm not trying, to, and I love the gospel, and all of these things. Um, so, no question there. But I, I'm interested also in controversial questions. I even inhabit a uh, website called Contra, uh, Issues in Critical Commentary. Issues in Critical You know, you got to know these questions sometimes because yes. they're going to pull you aside or they want to. That's why, you, that's why, thank you, Paul. That's why we, Timothy is called to deal with them. In other words, you don't just say, put on the rose-colored glasses and say, well, everything will work out. I'm not too worried about it. No, you have, Paul is telling Timothy to deal with it. He's telling Timothy what it looks like. And he's telling him, in 2 Timothy, how to deal with 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26. So the point is, identify, this doesn't mean we only know the, the true doctrine. We were naive about anything that might be wrong or controversial, but we're able to identify the difference because we're grounded in biblical exegesis, and we got to be circumspect that we can be wrong. That's why I believe in judging teaching. That we, that's why this class is here and why we have the mics. Someone should be able to question, and I've learned a lot over the last 25 years of people interacting. You've got to interact because no person is infallible. So, but the scriptures don't change. Notice in verse 3, the, Lord's of our, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are people saying the words of our Lord Jesus Christ aren't for the church. Well, you got a problem now. You can't even use 1 Timothy. I had to write about that and I got hate mail over it. But I'm not going to say that the head of the church has nothing to say to the church. What kind of a doctrine is that? Yes, uh, Brother Brian. Real quick, back to Luann's comment on the tares. Yeah. Isn't, when we went through the, the church structure, that would be, like, if you have somebody teaching wrongly in, like, youth Sunday schools or youth Sunday school or wherever, that, that would be the overseers. Isn't that where they would Yeah, we have elder. Yeah. The structures, elders and, uh, have a responsibility, which is what, why we're here. The elders at Ephesus were responsible. Timothy's now at Ephesus. The false teachers from without within showed up. Paul's telling Timothy how to deal with it. And that means you have to have trained people who are loving the truth and taught in the truth to be elders. So they have the tools to deal with it. And it isn't sufficient to have a little booklet, here's what we believe in case anybody cares. And then sometimes you never hear any of those doctrines in the booklet from the pulpit in 20 years. It was that way when I was in the United Methodist Church as a youth, and when I was required to join the church at 12 years old, I, because I was studying science, and the Bible had miracles in I read, uh, went over it in Sunday school, I asked the pastor, what's the problem? Because, and he said, well, 
those are just stories. None of these things ever really happened. So I said, well, so we don't believe that these things happen. But then I had to get up and swear that I did to join a church at 12. So that I'm required to swear that I believe something the pastor told me privately. He doesn't believe. See, that's how you end up now. Look at that organization. They're just falling apart. Now, dear ones, we, we're not building an institution. Jesus is building the kingdom. The foundation's already laid. Christ and his apostles. Christ, the chief cornerstone. Every convert is built on it. Every convert needs to be discipled. Persons. Every convert needs to be taught the whole counsel of God. We'll see that. We saw that earlier in Acts chapter 20, which we're still in. You might not realize that's what we're in. Um, that, and that includes correcting error. You can't let the false teachers have their way with the flock and call that good policy. We don't, how many pastors have told me, I don't believe in cracking air. I just accentuate the positive. That's utterly naive. And it's also in disobedience to what's taught right here. So you have morbid interest in controversial questions. We're not claiming you can understand and know every possible question. Believe me, I know that so well. I've spent hours and hours and hours and hours, and I'm hardly close to done in 1 Corinthians 7. Thank you for your patience. Preaching through 1 Corinthians 7 is the most difficult task I've had yet in uh, 50 years. And I thought I got through the hard stuff, but it's getting harder. I can tell by how long the commentaries are. Now, the point is, that doesn't mean... I can say I don't understand. It's not a sin to say you don't understand. But we take the Bible seriously. Listen. Look at what it says. Uh, If the source of the teaching is only the teacher, there's no resolution. There's no way for Timothy to correct a false teacher if you've got to accept every teaching that comes through based on bank account, popularity, number of books sold, number of TV shows you've been on, the size of the conferences, all of that doesn't make someone qualified to be a teacher because it has to agree with the sound words of the Lord and his apostles. So 1 Timothy 1.5, which we cited before, if you want to jot this down, I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction. What is the goal of biblical teaching? 1 Timothy 1.5, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love from a pure heart. How do you get a pure heart? Does anyone know? Yeah, you believe the gospel. And what does the Lord do that gives us a pure heart? Uh, Yes. I'm also thinking of in Psalm 119, uh, first handful of verses, how will a young man keep his way pure by taking heed according to your word? Yeah. So. Or in things, I think it was Psalm, was Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. 
uh, after David sinned, he had cried out to God for a clean heart. And the Lord purifies the soul, the whole inner person. The heart is often used for that. We don't need to figure out secular psychology or Christianized psychology or spiritual anatomy or all these little details because it's too complex. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, so I'm thinking of Jeremiah 17. I, the Lord, know the heart. There's a pure heart is something only God could ever create in us, and it's nurtured by the sound words. So the, the purified heart is kept by the word of God being taught. Then it says a good conscience. Pseudodasis, how does the conscience, what in the world could ever cleanse the conscience of a sinner? Simple answer, I'm not, it's not loaded. What can wash away my sin? <laughs> Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I told you it's a simple answer. How is it that that got too, um, how would you say it? People don't like to hear that. They'd rather have some complex answer. Yeah, it's too simple. You mean the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience? I think I'd rather have a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a how-to seminar, uh, theories about body, soul, and spirit, processes, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, disputes about words. Let's do this. Let's try that. You still have these issues going on. No, I would have a better idea. Only God can cleanse the heart. And a cleansed heart is a gift. Only God knows the heart. And only the blood of Jesus can cleanse our conscience. And a sincere faith. And a sincere faith would be a faith that's grounded in the finished work of Christ. That we share with one another in the body of Christ as we pray for one another and care for one another and encourage one another in our walk with the Lord Jesus. The church is defined biblically is a very simple thing. It's an organism attached to the head. And the various roles are not anatomical. The little toe is attached to the head as much as the neck. It's an organic whole. It's just the body idea is an analogy. Every member is attached to the head. Every member is loved by the Lord and his people. Every member is important. And every member is part of this family of God. Another analogy. Bride of Christ, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, looking forward to what he did. The, the problem is... This whole thing that I'm talking about is mocked by Christians. I'm reading a book that just now that mocks it. Anyone who longs for the return of Christ, mocked. Anyone who knows they need Christ to survive, mocked. Like the NAR. That we're fools if we think says George Warnock, the Christ is going to come and snatch away a miserable, defeated, disease-ridden church. 
So you better get your act together because don't believe Christ has come back for you. You're not good enough. And that offends me so much because it shows somebody who probably never visited the elderly in the church who are despairing needlessly because they've been hurt by false teaching. Somebody needs to get a heart for the body of Christ and quit mocking people who know they need Christ to comfort them. I need the Lord. Okay, go ahead. The purified heart through the means of grace. Yeah, you good answer. And which is very simple. Yeah. Accessible to all Christians. Right. And um through the means of grace, we uh, see a lot of people don't know this about me is that uh, I'm still a horrible person, and <laughs> yeah, and and the the doctrine of sanctification is a process through the point of glorification. So we're all at yeah. you could you could have a you could have a forty year Christian who has gone through a lot of process of mm-hmm. sanctification and uh, the Lord is taking his time on me. Well, so <laughs> I, if, if, tell me about it. I'm talking about me. If people knew what goes through my mind sometimes at the boat landing, I disciplined myself to not say anything. But it doesn't change the heart, does it? Uh, okay. Now, dear ones, we're, we're here together as the family got to help. As, and the word of God is what does it. I have a statement in my notes here about this section we're in. Disputes about words. And some would say, well, well, you're talking about words in the Greek and all this stuff. So you're doing the same thing. No, I'm, here's the difference. I'm wanting to understand what are the words of the Lord Jesus through his apostles, Paul's talking about that are sound words and how are they different than these ones he warns us about. And the difference is the words given to us once for all aren't going to change. They're not given out of bad motives. They're given by Holy Spirit inspired writers. And they're always going to be for your good always. As Moses spoke in the Old Testament. These words are for your good always. And so the other type can't be resolved. Can't be resolved because they're impossible to resolve. You can't, you've never, you can't deal with it. And the counseling theories, theophostic, I wrote about that. The reason you have problems is because of a first memory event, they say. So a big evangelical pastor in town brought in this guy to teach this. So I wrote a letter to the pastor. I said, here's what this guy teaches. And I laid it out and I'd written an article about it. Bing, 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 bing. I, had a letter, I got a response from the pastor, but he just dismissed me. So why would you have a church full of people who need to know about first memory events that reprocess their past when the blood of Jesus cleansed away all the sin anyhow? Well, I don't, I don't know, but 
talk about disputes about words, where, why would I believe a first memory event had anything to do with anything? What is that? Theophostic counseling. They get you into, sometimes they use altered states to do it, where it's sort of a semi-hypnotic state. You've, the first memory that comes to you about something, that becomes determinative of how you respond to similar things in the future. And that's their theory. I, I was asked, I actually taught, lectured about this, warning about it at a Lutheran seminary one time in Western Minnesota. But see, it's, it's something else. I believe that we need the sound words of our Lord Jesus. The past is not our friend if we try to analyze it. The best way to look at your past or mine or anybody else's is part of providence. In God's providence, we went through what we did, whatever it was. Everybody came from one ancestor, two actually, Adam and Eve, and we're sinners. And it looks differently. But the answer isn't to analyze all the differences of what sin looked like. It's the glory in the gracious blood of Jesus, the love of Christ who's cleansed us and put us into his family as new creatures in Christ, the last Adam. That's our identity. That's what it means. Analyzing is behind us. Let's look, keep looking here. I had a statement to make. If we do not have clear, authoritative teaching from Scripture, we have no way to resolve doctrinal issues and correct error. Sound doctrine is necessary to keep the various unacceptable doctrine outcomes, excuse me, outcomes from harming the church. The sound words from our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles do not lead to the then part of the if-then logical construction. The apotheosis, the then part, is this. The sound words of the Lord Jesus don't lead to this. They lead to rejoicing in our mutual salvation. They lead to a sincere faith, a clear, simple faith that's grounded in the truth. It's so profound, and yet so simple. It's so simple that once we understand it, the day we're a Christian, we're new. We're new creatures, and everything's changed. They're so profound that you can literally spend the rest of your lifetime studying these things and feel like it's a good thing for eternity. I have so much more to learn. That's why I loved it. I thought chemical engineering was complex. When I became a Christian, I realized this is even more amazing. You can't, you can't say you learned it. You're going to still keep learning, exploring our mutual salvation. Parochial, here's another statement I have in my notes here. Parochial church dogma, institutional church dogma, is supposed to solve this problem, but never has. That's my statement, and I'll defend it. Somebody really, really smart who has some really good ideas and studied doctrine can write it all down, get it notarized or whatever you do, Put it in the back of the hymnal. Say, now you believe this. Swear after me. I believe this. Therefore, from now on, you have sound doctrine. Now, let's go about doing church. It never works. 
And eventually, the ordained ministers who do that will grow up within the church and they'll say exactly what the pastor said to me. And he was a World War I era person. Um, no, I don't believe any of that. I've a, a, I worked with a fellow who's a Lutheran pastor and then got involved with the charismatic and we worked together. And he told me the story of being ordained after going through all those things we're talking about, getting the robes and stuff, the ordination, getting it in back, and then one new pastor after another saying, I don't believe any of that garbage. I just wanted a job. I just wanted a job. And then you got a building and all this stuff. That's why we have to get the church defined biblically. Parochial church dogma, parochial means this is our segment here, supposed to solve a problem and never has. It is soon ignored. It becomes Christian doctrine in name only as future generations come up with ways to ignore, redefine, or simply leave in the file cabinet as they teach whatever they want. So where is the truth going to be taught? Who's going to be so in love with the truth Jesus Christ shared with loving Jesus and his truth that it's going to matter. Paul is telling Timothy, it matters. It matters. It matters to the Lord. You're there in Ephesus. Paul predicted it. Timothy's there. Don't let them despise your youth. Pray that God raises up young elders who will continue to do that. I know that's a, the word elder means older man. I got that part down, older. Um, but the fact is that we have to train people in the ways of the truth so that there are people that God will equip so we don't have to see people turned over. Now, what we have after this here, controversial questions, disputes about word. They can't be resolved because they didn't come from the Lord Jesus and his apostles. And, oh boy, talk about not resolvable. When you try to talk about the inner workings of the human conscience and why the heart is as di difficult. The Bible says, who can understand it? Applied answer, nobody but the Lord himself. And how does the Lord himself resolve it? In Jeremiah 17, he gives us a new heart. It's worse than we thought. We can't fix it. Only God can give us a new heart. But it's better than we thought. He gives it as a gift. And suddenly, we love the things we hated, and we can't learn enough about those sound words. So then what comes? What's the fruit of the false teachers? Here it is. Out of which arise, here's the fruit, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. I'll take, take note that I need to start with that uh, between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. I have some material on that I'll bring next week. Here's what happens. Once the source of the doctrine of the church is not the words of our Lord Jesus, which is given to us 
in the scripture, Christ and his apostles, as we begin together to drill down and understand, we can resolve it. What's the best reading? What did God say? But when the source starts with the philosophy of man, it's irresolvable. My psychologist is better than your psychologist. My prophet is better than your prophet. My kingdom wealth is greater than your kingdom wealth. My seminar is better than your seminar. You just start deciding who's the greatest. Now, an important aspect, and I've talked about this a lot, you find in Luke X, is the uh, uh, foreboding events in Luke where there's disputes about who's the greatest. And whenever that came up, Jesus rebuked them. Because he saw his disciples debating about who's the greatest as an echo of the fall. You can be like God. And he said, well, the, the Gentiles lorded over their own people. Shall not be that way with you. The least shall be the greatest. We need to see the value of one another, every Christian, everyone the Lord saved, as being a great value to God. And when we see people who would come to be in fellowship with us, we don't see them as whether they can contribute this, that, or the other thing, but as people created in the image of God, added to his uh, family, and that way, as you get older and you don't feel like you have anything to contribute, you're not losing any status in the eyes of God. And uh, we should be just as willing to visit somebody who has no money, no clout, no status, but they love the Lord Jesus. They are precious to God. They have no way to repay us. And um, that understanding of the church will never harm people. And the danger we need to always, always guard against is, look at this, envy, strife, abusive language. Where does that come from? Status rivalry. Who's the greatest? Who's important? Who knows something you don't know? Who has more clout? Who's got better standing in the world out there? Um, and I have those words all. I got the Greek here, and the words are broken down. Let me see what I have. Blinded, having been blinded. <clears throat> and then um, ailing, but ailing. And then speculations, cetasis, which has to do with that morbid craving. Logomachia, I already talked about word fights. Then ek, out of which comes genomai, envy, phronos. Envy would, as I said, claim, I know something you don't know. Where'd it come from? I got a word from God. I know something you don't know. 
No, if it's the faith once for all headed down to the saints, it's accessible to all because we all have the same body of sound doctrine. Strife. Well, the, the, once you get into fights about who's the greatest, somebody needs to win and somebody needs to lose. The glorious thing about the body of Christ is God caring for each one and, our, and us caring for each other is not winning and losing, is growing together in the building of the Lord. Somebody doesn't have to lose in the body of Christ for someone else to be benefited. But someone benefiting themselves at the expense of others is harming. Yes, a Luann. I'm tying back to what Brian had said earlier about sanctification. Yes. Um, just with this evil suspicions that it talks about. Because, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it, it talks about love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious. It doesn't brag. It's not puffed up. And then the dot, dot, dot. But rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, yeah. and endures all things. And that's what we do for one another in the body is we Amen. have, you know, that kind of love. Yeah, some, thank you, Luann. Someone's, everyone's benefit is a blessing to everyone in the body. Anyone whose prayer is answered, where anyone suffers, we all suffer. That's the biblical view of the body. Uh, the word insults here, abusive language, evil, is blasphemies, blasphemia. And then paneros is evil, conjectures, hyponomia. Nomias would be a reminder of your thoughts, hupo is upon. Evil conjectures. We need to focus on what can be known, what, not what cannot be known. The recesses of the human conscience cannot be known. The grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he taught can be known. So let's focus on that. Then constant irritations, interesting word. Constant irritations. Here it says constant friction. That's just exactly what happens. Once you get into the who's the greatest, there's no resolution. The body of Christ isn't a football team. And we're not competing. We're not competing against one another. And we're not competing against other families of God members elsewhere or groups elsewhere. When you run into someone in person, anywhere, immediately there's a connection. There's a unity that only God could make. A fellow from Australia contacted me a couple of years ago. What about this? And so I'd share an article. What about that? Well, here's a sermon. Well, I'm trying to figure this out. I really don't have much fellowship here. Pretty rural in Australia. Eventually, the guy downloaded everything and gained an, an education. And the unity I have with him, I've never seen, probably won't meet till eternity. But he, he was so hungry for the truth, he couldn't get enough. And that's why we need to make careful, be careful of what we put out is 
of, from the words of the Lord Jesus, his apostles, and it's valid. So then what we want to look at here, here's the point. We need to have a common base, common relationships with Christ as the head, one another as part of the family, members of the body, common source of doctrine, scripture alone, common understanding of the kingdom, which is not of this world, but we're building blocks being added to it as God converts, and a common understanding of wanting to be conformed to the image of Christ. And therefore, we don't have to defeat some other Christian to get ahead. There's nobody to compete with. We're working together. And we're working together with some fellow in Australia I've never met. But he's so hungry. Finally, they apologize. I email you so often. I have another question. But they're, they're hungry. There's people hungry. And pray that God would raise up big enough groups around the world where people can just gather around the word of God and the means of grace. You don't have to be big. Two or three gathered together, hopefully more. And then um, next week, I want to deal with something important. Uh, the friction is between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. I did a little work on depraved and deprived. Not that we want to be that, but I looked up the Greek words, and it's interesting um, where it leads. It says it leads to support the supposition that godliness is a means of gain. We began by mentioning the ad we've been seeing on TV for wealth multiplication to have kingdom impact. I've seen the ad about five times now. Go to our conference. Here's all these young, strong, handsome, powerful people. Wealth multiplication for kingdom impact. And I can't figure out yet why the kingdom needs the wealth of man. I don't get that. Paul, and then we've got to close. In the evangelical churches where I was, um, the way they lead a person to Christ, they don't go by scripture, they go by the four spiritual laws. It starts out with God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, who doesn't want that? But they don't talk anything about sin. So you talk about your struggle with sin, and they don't, they don't know how to deal with it. They, um, they don't know how to deal with it at all. You're lost. Well, that's you out there right now. I was watching on baseball games. Now they have this, he gets us. Now they have some other angles on that. Jesus believed in his team, believes in his team. So somehow or another, people become the object of Jesus's faith. Rather than Christ once for all shed blood becoming the object of our faith. So they get it backwards. I found out where that came from. Some billionaire trying to build a kingdom by slogans that are not really biblical. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, kindness, for being so gracious to allow us to be part of your family, to be stones that are built into the 
foundation as we grow together and to fellowship with you as the head. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for the once for all faith that we've been handed. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches us from Matthew that his words would penetrate to our heart as they're from what you've taught, and may we learn and grow. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear ones.